Welcome to Power Surge from the Center for Industrial Progress. I'm Alex Epstein in Orange County, joined by Stefan Henn in Germany. Stefan, welcome. Thank you for inviting me on again. All right. So, well, we've been discussing negative stories the past couple shows, maybe all the shows, uh, which is partially a reflection of the fact that a lot of energy-related news, and particularly the things that people are confused about, involve bad news. And unfortunately, we're going to have more of that today. Um, but we'll start out with something I'll tentatively call signs of life. So let's let's talk about a positive story. So Stefan, what's going on positively? Uh, Enterprise Products Partners, um, which is an oil pipeline company, um, proposed a direct pipeline from the Buckenshale uh, formation in North Dakota to uh, Cushing in Oklahoma, where a storage hub for petroleum products is located. And uh, it will be a 1,200-mile pipeline with a capacity of 340,000 barrels per day. And um, they've proposed this despite the fact that several other companies have not been able to establish a direct pipeline connection between the shale formation and the storage hub. So this seems, and they want this pipeline to be up and running by the end of 2016. So we'll see how this will advance in the future, but that's a good sign. Or is it, do you think it could be over optimism? I mean, what, what would be different here than all the others that have been proposed and not allowed? Um, I think this is a mixture of like, regulatory and technological problems but um they are proper they are they seem to be confident that they will overcome the difficulties others could not so yeah i mean just to give context this is you know this has been the positive energy story in the united states or at least uh, i'd say the leading one of north dakota going from essentially you know, a non-player in the energy market uh, to a leader. Uh, Harold Hamm is probably the, the businessman. Harold Hamm of Continental Resources is probably the businessman most famously associated uh, with it and, and having a leadership role. And it's, it's been this amazing story of uh, the United States producing more and more oil when, you know, it was predicted that we would continually be uh, producing uh, less and less. But you run into you know into the same issue here that you know we've run into in Canada, which is that you know oil is a is a product and product needs to be moved to the people who can benefit from it, and pipeline is the most efficient way to do that for you know any kind of uh, bulk long distance uh, use on the same continent, and this is where. You know, this is one way in which opponents can get involved is to is to not just forbid the use of oil, which people might connect more tentatively to their lives, but forbid the uh, transportation of oil. So um, I haven't seen all the details of, of the, the project, so I can't uh, vouch for it in the sense that there's nothing wrong with it. But in terms of the, the fundamental goal of moving, uh, you know, of moving oil from uh, its origin to a crucial distribution point, that's that's definitely something that we should hope will happen. <clears throat> um, 
and would be uh, would be great if happened. I mean, you talk about 300,000 barrels, barrels 42 gallons. That's it's a lot of oil. It's a lot of that's a lot of life. And that brings us to the next story, which is uh, a follow-up um, on yesterday's story about Hank Paulson. And this is the risky business report. Uh, Stefan, tell us about that. Yeah, the project is, or the report is called the Risky Business Report, and um, as you said, uh, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and um, Tom Steyer, the financier, um, and former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, or Henry Paulson, <laughs> um, were involved in this, um, and it claims to be the most detailed assessment of future climate damage to the United States. Um, and it reports that um, by the year 2100, um, the damage from climate change to the United States could be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, yeah, and it describes in great detail how this um, these numbers add up, uh, like crop yield reduction and heat wave uh, heat waves leading to more uh, need for electricity and so on um, yeah yeah so I don't know about you but if I'm listening to the radio and they bring on a psychic to predict the future I want as little detail as possible I'd like them to shut up as quickly as possible because they have no basis uh, for these predictions and it's the same situation here. These are all, and this, this goes to uh, the discussion yesterday about providing evidence and explaining how much evidence you actually have. These are all based on um, invalidated uh, models. So, you know, they're not valid predictions. To call it a study or an assessment is a term of art. I mean, you're assessing your own bogus predictions. I mean, you can provide an assessment of what Nostradamus' predictions will mean for the next 10 years if you interpret them or, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, Mayan apocalypse prophecy. And it might sound unfair to compare these, but really, the, these are, are bogus predictions. I mean, prediction is extremely, extremely hard. Uh, one, one way we can know about the quality of predictions is to assess the past predictions of a given approach or a given model, and this, this approach uh, is a failure. So it's, it's you know, and they have, they have ways of explaining how, well, they weren't really wrong or, you know, something got in the way or whatever, but that's, that doesn't fly. They have not actually made successful predictions. So this is, and this is based on, well, more than one set of faulty models, but at least at the core with the climate models, that that's that's one of the major ones. Um, so as we talked about yesterday, just ask people what is your evidence and know that particularly with projections about the future, and we see this in business a lot, it's possible just to have things that are completely arbitrary, uh, you know, completely without evidence. And one good indication is, is our you know, on whatever model, are they being careful to consider the big picture, all the positives and all the negatives? And this is, if you look at any of these, the stories about this, there's there's nothing resembling that. They don't talk seriously about the risks 
of taking of massive reductions of fossil fuels just about the risks of using them. So you need to always talk about the risks of using and the risks of not using, or the, the benefits of using uh, and the risks of using. And this does not do that, uh, so it is just a piece of political propaganda, and detail is not uh, a virtue. You know, it's just kind of like garbage. All other things being equal, you want less of it. Now, you know, if we produce a lot more, great. More, more garbage, totally worth it. But if it's pure garbage, which this is, you want uh, less of it. Uh, Stefan, anything to add? I would just say that um, you have to think that it builds on the uncertain science, quote-unquote, of climate change, and then adds to that an uh, uncertainty of economic development in the future and in the long-term future. And um, it's also interesting to see that all these different organizations come up with completely different numbers. And even the IPCC comes up with different numbers over time. They have the, they, in every assessment report, they have an economic impact um, report included. And then they had the Stern report, which had yet another number for the worldwide damage they expect. You know, this report was even greater detail in the United States. Um, and the science doesn't add up. Because you're uncertain about the climate development, there are unproven assumptions in there, and then you have an economic model that builds on that uncertain outcome and projects a specific damage number to developments in the next, like, 90 to 100 years. It's, it doesn't add up. And as we've seen in working on the moral case for fossil fuels, which you've been heavily involved in, just we have a whole track record of this category of prediction and it's completely wrong and it's always wrong in the direction of pessimism because it doesn't look at the big picture and it has almost no understanding of the role of energy and of human ingenuity in progress. So it keeps saying these things like crop yields, you know, damages from storms, um, people are going to die. And, you know, we look at every, basically every positive indicator of human life is up, so GDP, life expectancy, and then every negative one is down. You know, malnutrition, drought-related death, flood-related death, storm-related death, climate-related deaths overall, deaths from major diseases, um, and all of these were predicted by, you know, authorities to the, the same kinds of authorities to increase uh, dramatically, and. You know, that that just goes to show how easy it is to be wrong and how important it is to be very careful in one's thought. And that includes honest about one's track record. And these are not. All right. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to make an executive decision. We're not going to go too much into the, the third story we're going to talk about. I'll just summarize really quickly. Is the, the EPA had another ruling that, um, you know, that allows, that affirms the EPA's authority to, Environmental Protection Agency's authority to, uh, regulate, control greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, this is one of the worst things that is, I mean, this this phenomenon, including this latest affirmation, um, is, you know, one of the worst things that's happened in the United States in the past five years. Uh, I mean, it, to say you can regulate CO2 emissions is to give you control over every aspect of life that involves CO2 emissions, which is 
every aspect of life, since fossil fuel energy is the energy uh, of life at this point in, in history by, by a long shot. Um, so, I mean, that, you know, the, the just how anti-life this is, how bad law this is, and then how bad the thinking is that people are not afraid of this, I think is, is ominous, um, which is a negative note, but, <clears throat> you know, on a, on a more positive note, I have, I, I posted yesterday on a couple of different social media platforms, um, I got my manuscripts of the moral case for fossil fuels in, in the mail, so it's, it's pretty cool to have uh, physical copies, um, you know, the initial manuscript and the final man, I mean, the, like, full galleys will be in a month or so. <clears throat> and, um, you know, while I was, you know, doing this show reminds me that of sort of how important it is to have when we look at these daily events to have a resource uh, for putting things in context. And that gives us a level of understanding where we can have uh, a response to the daily events where we can persuade others and, and we have something to give others. And you know, every day when I was writing it, I was thinking this, you know, I want this to cover, you know, the, the issues really like, like never before to, to just show the big picture case as powerfully as I could. And I think it does. So when I see these stories, part of me is uh, very frustrated. Um, but at the same time, I'm glad I made the decision to invest the time making that book because there's your know, daily commentary is valuable, but uh, we need something much more uh, enduring and substantial to give us all uh, a go-to resource to use for our own thinking and for others. So uh, definitely, uh, I hope you pre-order Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, um, you know, for yourself, for others uh, to give out as gifts. It comes out November 13th. And, you know, every book, you know, every book counts in the sense of um, I think it'll, I think you'll enjoy it and, and learn a lot from it. Um, others will be moved by it it'll you know the more you give out the more word of mouth there is and you know every book that's sold is another x number of seconds that the book can can be on the best uh, seller list I, I made that calculation yesterday but i forget what it is but um it's you know e you know every every book matters and then getting on the best seller list that means more prominence for the book it means that i get to voice a lot of these ideas you know more of these ideas on tv and debates and that can have a, a very positive uh, impact, you know, it can be can be a virtuous circle, and we really, you know, whatever it is, we we need we need much better results here. We need much more prominent, uh, you know, much more prominent voice in favor of industrial progress and and fossil fuel energy in uh, particular, because these things are just being allowed to happen, and the 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 responses to them are often very meek and not moral and not powerful and. You know, just to give you an indication, Steyer said, we need to reward people whose behavior reduces climate risk and penalizes people who add to it, unquote. Well, I think after reading Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, you'll have all the arguments and data why if you want to do that, then you should be rewarding fossil fuel companies and penalizing Tom Steyer. Uh, Stefan, anything to add? To me, it's stunning uh, how big the majority in the U.S. government is from Congress to the administration to the Supreme Court. Uh, with these, They all agree on these bad fundamental ideas. Um, 
And I hope that the book will make some impact on them. There's certainly much room for improvement. What about the German government? Oh, yeah. I mean, if they bother to read it in English, but maybe we get a translation. Well, I know someone who knows German and English. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, all right. Well, maybe Merkel speaks English, so we'll run it by her. Yeah, that's probably easy for her to get a translation, even though there's nothing on the market. Okay, well, um, hope everyone enjoyed that. Stefan, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you. My pleasure.